0: I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're in the third and final act of the book of Mark. Usually, Mark is seen as having three parts. Uh, The first section of Mark is uh, Jesus revealing and demonstrating His His power and His divinity. Uh, Verse uh, Chapter 1 through chapter 8, that demonstration that Jesus is the Christ as Uh, nearly countless miracles are performed, even Jesus healing people all night long in in one of the early chapters of Mark. Uh, The middle section of Mark is the clarifying focus that comes not just on the identity of Christ, but on what it means to follow Him. That's the section we just finished, chapter 8, verse 22 through the end of chapter 10. Uh, Jesus clarifies through things like Peter's confession, uh, Mark's agenda as the author is is really pressing forward. Uh, Hardly any miracles uh, occur in that middle section of Mark, just two miracles uh, that are really featured, miracles of sight, Uh, blind Bartimaeus uh, and the uh, other blind man that's healed, all pointing not towards just Jesus's power in that case, but teaching us a lesson about what it means to see and what it means to have spiritual sight and spiritual sense. And so we looked at that in the middle section, really clarifying what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And now uh, we enter into the final act of Mark's gospel. Uh, And this is where Jesus demonstrates once and for all. He proves in a final way uh, why he came, announcing his purpose in chapter 10, verse 46 uh, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we come to chapter 11, we enter into the final week of Jesus' life. As if. And in the gospel of Mark, I feel like it comes at you differently than in other gospel accounts because it does feel so sudden. And perhaps that's the immediacy of, of the movement of Mark's narrative uh, compared with some of the longer gospel accounts. But you can tell that this is, this is a, a large amount of material. Verse, or chapter 11 through chapter 16 is... Uh, not the bulk of Mark, but it's a a huge proportionate amount. And so Mark, like all the gospel writers, uh, takes his time to examine the most significant aspect of Jesus's ministry, which is his death and resurrection. And so that's where we find ourselves. In Mark chapter 11, the beginning of the Passion Week, uh, we have a famous passage in front of us this morning, one that perhaps you remember from Sunday school accounts and from uh, celebrating before Easter on Palm Sunday. This is called the triumphal entry normally, uh, Mark eleven one through 14. But I think that there's some real surprising truth here that can help you see King Jesus Uh, with greater clarity, and understand why He came. And so let's read Mark 11, verse 1 through verse 11. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, well, "What are you doing untying the colt?" They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches from which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna!" Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. This is the very word of the living God. Kingship is something that Americans don't really think about very much. Uh, I certainly don't. Except as a kid playing checkers, when you get that little piece to that last row and you say, King me. Because that means you get to move with freedom. Hopping over whatever checker is in your way, any direction. Uh, That's pretty much my understanding of kingship. In, as an American, a red-blooded, big-time American. We don't think about inaugurations of kings. We don't think about coronations of kings. Uh, we have mm, uh, an unending, seemingly contentious elections in our democracy, and, and kings are not our thing. And I think it's that disadvantage that we bring to a text like this. Known as the triumphal entry, this is a passage of Scripture that is so filled with this concept of kingship that its original audience lived in that kind of a world, a world of of monarchs, a world of despots, a world of of promised kings and would-be messiahs. You see, the Jewish people had... Been under the reign of not only God-appointed kings, but even the idea of kingship was built into their law. Originally, in their constitution, uh, before God, uh, that God formed them as a people, calling Abraham, God was their king. But by the time of Samuel and the prophets, God allowed for them to have a king like the other nations did. And they had a a series of kings, sometimes good kings, sometimes bad kings, sometimes kings who were a a blessing to God's people, and sometimes kings who were a curse. Uh, Their very first king, Saul, was a combination of those two things, ultimately being a rejected king who was a man who was ill-suited for the kingship of God's people, replaced by an almost idyllic king in King David. And after David, a long line of kings would come. But before Solomon, the son of David, who was God's choice to follow David and to build the temple that Jesus surveys at the end of this passage, that Jesus cleanses in chapter 11, verse 15 and following, before Solomon was crowned as king, David's older son, Adonijah was his name. Uh, was one who tried to be king, one of these would-be kings. And that story in the book of Kings is, is one that's uh, full of pomp and circumstance because Adonja was someone who didn't deserve to be king, except in his own mind he thought he should be. He hired trumpet blasters and gathered a group of soldiers and chariots and and marched on the holy city, uh, basically trying to look kingish. And that act of rebellion had to be dealt with by the rightful king. And after Solomon was put on his throne, a, a series of kings that were increasingly wicked and evil would occupy David's throne. Uh, Sometimes there would be times of reform, and a king would be a good and godly king who would bring about change. Uh, Other times, uh, the kingship itself was threatened because of invasion of a foreign occupying army or of the uh, gathering of the people and the hauling off into exile, and so they would sit under a foreign king. But Israel had always known what it was like to be under kings, both good and bad even in their recent history, in the time of Mark's writing, they understood what it was like to be under a Roman authority and under a series of kings in the Herodian style. And so Jesus's entry into Jerusalem with all of these marks of kingship and fulfilled prophecies of messiahship comes with so much baggage that we probably don't have unless we've studied our Bibles very carefully. Jesus's approach to Jerusalem isn't something that's just part of the normal travel log of the gospel. Instead, it's something that Jesus has set his face on, Uh, since chapter 8, verse 27, uh, has reminded us of of that kind of journey. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on his way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? This was Jesus identifying uh, on his way to Jerusalem exactly who he was. and, And throughout Mark's gospel, there are markers pointing towards Jesus, moving towards Jerusalem. And now we finally enter. Jesus approaches Jerusalem in verse 1. And he does so with some fanfare and with interesting notes in this passage. This is one of the the passages. There's only really two uh, moments that all the gospel writers have in common besides the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the feeding of the 5,000 and... It's the triumphal entry. It's it's that important. It's that emphasized. It's really centered. And, and to bring in all this thinking about what does it mean to be a king? What does it mean to enter on a colt? Why are they throwing blankets and, and coats and cloaks down in the road? Why are they waving palm branches? I mean, we get this because of the funnest day in Sunday school when you get to wave a, a leaf in class, but having an understanding of of all the importance that's built into this really helps you identify the purpose of Jesus's coming and his rightful kingship as it applies to you and to I. Because Jesus isn't a kind of usurping king. He isn't a, a king that doesn't belong. But because this king is treated in a way that no other king would ever be treated because his His fanfare is so muted by the end of this chapter. And then the opposition is so strong as we move into the the subsequent chapters, and then this king will be arrested and tried and crucified. This is a different kind of kingship, a different kind of Messiah that the people did not expect. And understanding those expectations is how we enter into this section of Scripture. Following the unique emphasis that Mark places on it. And I think the way to understand the kingship of Jesus in your life through this passage is to look at, at really three aspects of King Jesus's, uh, just accents of King Jesus's work in Mark 11, 1 through 11. Let's start by looking at these opening verses and let's consider the sovereignty of King Jesus, the sovereignty of King Jesus. Look what verse 1 says, as they approach Jerusalem at Bethphage. That's a a village that doesn't exist anymore, somewhere near Bethany, one of these uh, outside the walls of the city, along the Mount of Olives. Remember the, the the route that they were taking was one from Jericho up to Jerusalem, from way below sea level all the way to the heights of Mount Zion. They would pass along and even a greater mountain called the mount of olives or mount olivet and and so this is more than just the geographical note in verse 1 it's something packed with significance and the significance begins with approaching jerusalem as i told you a moment ago everything that jesus has done has been timing his entry to jerusalem and he enters not alone but with all his disciples and not just with his disciples, but with all the travelers that were entering Jerusalem for Passover. This is one of several required feasts that the Jews would attend annually. And they would sing their songs, the songs of ascent from Psalm uh, 113 to 118 as they entered into uh, the path to go to Jerusalem. As they uh, came around, uh, down through Jericho and then up towards the Mount of Olives and, and around that that. Uh, path that would go to the great city and eventually uh, Jerusalem herself would be seen and the people would be excited and celebratory and the sounds of the city and the sight of the temple would all attend their entry into the city. And so Jesus is not the only one on this road. He's traveling with his disciples, with the crowd of interested people. According to the Gospel of John at this point, the The crowd that surrounds Jesus because of his healing of Lazarus in John chapter 11, which immediately precedes this triumphal entry, has generated even more interest and discussion and rubberneckers. Just people watching and wondering, what is this man going to do? And so lots of people are with Jesus as he approaches. But Jesus is sticking close to his disciples and he's moving towards Jerusalem towards Bethany, which was where Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha lived, so a place that Jesus was familiar with, kind of a home base for Jesus outside of Jerusalem, a place that he'll return to three times in the next chapter, uh, kind of staying the night outside of Jerusalem, going into the city during the day. It was only two miles away, so it was a really brief trip to get to Jerusalem, and he would stay likely at his friend's house in Bethany, or, or in this neighboring village of Bethphage, which means house of unripened figs, just if you're, you're into that kind of thing. I don't know who's into unripened figs, but they were in Bethphage. Uh, the Mount of Olives is a place that's also noteworthy, not just because it's a giant mountain next to Jerusalem, but because it was also a place loaded with Messianic imagery. Not only was Jerusalem the city of King David and the the location of Uh, God's worship in the temple, but the Mount of Olives was a place that had been noted for its Uh, eschatological significance by the prophets. Uh, The Mount of Olives is a place where the Messiah is said to return and put his feet on it, and the mountain will split in the book of Zephaniah. So there is lots going on just in the the kind of heavy, loaded, geographical terminology of verse 1. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem as this Uh, expected messiah as the christ identified by his disciples by his miraculous works and he's moving towards this place that his face has been set like flint to go to and suddenly he pauses in these neighboring villages just two miles away from jerusalem And instead of walking into the city, which would have been very simple and very easy, and it's what he'll do the next two times he goes into the city, he gives his disciples some instruction. And I think it's instruction that highlights the sovereignty of King Jesus. Look what he says to them in verse 2. Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, You will find a colt tied there. Palos is a Greek word for colt. It means young horsey creature. Uh, This kind of cancels out my my disqualifying the Mustang thing because this is a very broad word for horse. It could mean uh, foal, colt, donkey. It's It's a young equine kind of an animal. And you'll find a colt, he says tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. So this cult that Jesus speaks about by this text and the other gospel accounts doesn't seem to be a prearranged cult. He wasn't going to Enterprise or Avis or National Cult Rental to get a cult that he'd signed up for or Arranged for with the owners. Though some commentators are insistent that that's what's happening here. But there's nothing in this passage that implies that this was a preset arrangement. Otherwise, why is Jesus doing so much to ready them to get this particular colt and to have the kind of answer back if somebody tells them, hey, why are you untying my colt? Uh, it seems to be Jesus employing his divine omniscience and speaking with sovereign authority because Jesus owns not only this cult, but all cults in the cult world. All horses are Jesus's horse. And so this is an example of Jesus violating the Ninth Commandment or, or, or stealing a horse or the Eighth Commandment. Ninth Commandment, Whoa. Um, Instead, this is Jesus rightfully exercising his opportunity to borrow a colt that ultimately belongs to God. And so he sends his disciples to find this particular colt. I'm going to say donkey because apparently I can't say the word colt today. And and the other gospel writers do call it a donkey. And he finds this young donkey Exactly where Jesus says it will be. Verse three, Jesus even anticipates the response. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he'll he'll bring it back. He'll return the the donkey to its rightful place. And so There's some things to note here in the sovereignty of Jesus. One, his omniscient understanding of where this donkey is. Second, his incredible ability as the sovereign God to know not only where the colt is, but what circumstances will require you taking someone's colt that's tied to their own doorway. Not only that, but there's an interesting note here that says... On which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. There's a lot going on in this little passage, and it's it's rich with, with prophetic significance. Jesus is now intentionally fulfilling messianic prophecy. Remember the, the secretive nature of Jesus' mission up to this point. Constantly telling people he healed, don't tell anyone. Trying to stifle the fervor around Jesus' potential kingship, about his identity as Messiah, revealing it to his disciples and giving them insight and helping them understand his his purpose in coming, but not wanting to create a frenzy so that he would be made king by force. He's intentionally and sovereignly orchestrating this moment in a very public way to fulfill specific passages of Scripture. One of them that we need to look at is in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, it's at the end of the the minor prophets right before Malachi. You'll find Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is an incredible prophecy. It's, it's one of the longer ones, and I think MacArthur's going to preach through it. It consists of eight visions, four messages, and two oracles. And it's a big call to repentance. It has lots about the identity of God's people and God's future plan for them and for their restoration and for a judgment on the nations. It's full of prophetic, powerful imagery. But when you get to Zechariah 14, verse 3 through 4, You see this reference, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountains will move towards the north, the other half towards the south. It's that kind of stuff that normally occupies the attention of Zechariah. Eschatological end times visions of the Mount of Olives. But skip back to chapter 9, verse 9. And as prophets often do, he's moving between near prophecies and far prophecies, current day judgments, future day judgments. And in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's those words that the rabbis always took to be significant about the way the Messiah would come. That His entrance would be a combination of rejoicing and triumph, of kingship and deliverance and salvation, but some sort of humility verse 9 that word can also be translated affliction and so jesus is fulfilling this prophecy about a coming king entering the city through jubilant rejoicing as he's received by his people but there's also a tone of humble affliction the fact that he's riding on a donkey is significant because of that humility. King David came into Jerusalem on a donkey once, but further kings and kings in Jesus's day normally would ride on a war horse. It was that kind of a threat that they would enter into their domain with. But Jesus does enter on a humble animal, a donkey, and he enters in a way that's showing something about the nature of his coming. Something about the nature of his kingship. Something about this Messiah, contrary to the disciples' understanding and expectations, is not going to be a king with a sword, but a king who comes with salvation through affliction. And so Jesus fulfills this prophecy. There's also more to it than that because of that phrase back in Mark 11. That says you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Well, that's a weird note, isn't it? On no one, a colt that no one has ever sat on. It's a, it's not a used donkey. This is a new, off the showroom kind of a donkey. This is a donkey that has never been sat on before. An untamed donkey. It's a young donkey. It's a donkey that is brand new. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, there is religious significance in Torah to that. Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21, and 1 Samuel 6 all talk about animals that haven't been yoked, haven't been bridled, haven't been saddled, being holy. This is a holy donkey. Not because this donkey is you know, not doing any donkey sins, but the word holiness means set apart, sanctified. And often when animals were chosen for special tasks in uh, Israelite worship or for sacrifice, they were supposed to be sanctified animals. Animals set apart, animals never yoked, animals never used. And so there's some kind of significance to this donkey being never ridden before. This lowly animal, not an animal of war, but a common animal being ridden by the promised Messiah and Savior of Israel as he enters into the city with fanfare, but not the kind of fanfare that even David would have had, which have been the entirety of the city united around David's rule. Instead, it's a band of disciples traveling alongside of all these pilgrims, And the city is electrified, but not all of them are on Jesus' side. And even the the cries that Jesus hears will not be the kind of cries that express a full understanding of the nature of Jesus' mission. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a poem about this donkey. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorns, Some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Donkey palm. And so this lowly animal, known for its stubbornness, known for its commonness, was employed by the Lord to carry him into Jerusalem. The sovereignty of Jesus in his fulfillment of this prophecy, in his selection, his omniscience of sending the disciples, and things, of course, verse 4 and 5 go exactly as he said they would. And it's got the sound of eyewitness testimony. So perhaps Peter, who filled Mark in for this gospel, uh, is the one who was sent. We don't know. It just says they went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. One more thing that may be noteworthy here. The word tied occurs five times, verse 2 twice, verse 4 twice, again in verse 5, tie, untie, tie, tie, untie. Some, some see in this repeated underlining of the word tied that this donkey is tied up and then untied according to Jesus' sovereign instructions. Some people see Genesis Genesis 49 there when Jacob blesses his sons and that fourth son Judah is called a wild donkey that will be tied to the vine. I don't know if that was in Mark's mind here, but perhaps it was. I think the thing that is obvious is just how sovereign and meticulous Jesus is in orchestrating the circumstances of his entry into the holy city. I mean, he knew that the owners, I think it's John that says that these are the owners that are standing there saying, why are you stealing my donkey? Jesus knew that that would happen. And Jesus knew that when they said the Lord has need of it, for some reason that would suffice. And that the plan was to bring it back. And they gave Jesus' permission, the disciples' permission, to take the colt. So verse 7, they bring the colt to Jesus. They put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And I just think the sovereignty of Jesus in this scene is something that's noteworthy. To know that that Jesus is in control of all donkeys everywhere. Because Jesus is in control of all people everywhere. Everywhere. And Jesus knows where this donkey is, and he knows who the owners are, and he knows exactly what circumstances will attend the selection, reservation, and uh, getting of this donkey. I know that seems like a small thing, but I can't even find my keys half the time. And here is Sovereign King Jesus, with this total omniscience of all things, orchestrating a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy from hundreds of years before that he might attend his coronation, his walking into the holy city, this final week of his life, exactly as the prophets foretold it. And so I see in it the sovereignty of King Jesus. Secondly, I think, this passage seeks to underline the acclaim of King Jesus. The acclaim of King Jesus. And it starts in verse 7. As they brought the colt to Jesus and, he put, and they put their coats on it and he sat on it. Uh, there's nothing said about this, this colt being unbroken. Uh, two of the other gospel writers say that this colt had a mama a donkey with it. And so Mark doesn't need to give you every detail that everybody else did. He's highlighting this one particular donkey, the donkey that wrote the Chesterton poem. Not the mama donkey, but other commentators want you to know that uh, the mama donkey makes the baby donkey calm, which has been my experience with mamas and donkeys uh, as well. So I can authenticate that. But this donkey didn't need to be broken. I think not just because its mama was with it, but because its creator was about to ride on it. And so as the disciples put these coats on this donkey in a way of sort of saddling it, they set Jesus on this donkey as well. And as he enters into the city in a throng of pilgrims, a throng of travelers all approaching the holy city, all singing the songs of the Psalms of Ascent as was their custom and tradition, they start to throw their coats down in front of the colt to pave the path with their different garments and as they spread their coats on the road in a way saying all that we have is yours in a way you know trying to symbolize this kingly entrance uh, in their limited understanding of what Jesus' Messiahship entailed. Uh, this crowd wasn't thinking we're going to throw our coats down and then Jesus is going to die on a cross. That's the furthest thing from their mind. they got to be thinking of their own history, of when David entered, of when Solomon entered, of when Jehu entered in 2 Kings 9, and the people threw their cloaks Uh, on the ground, like a red carpet entrance for this king in their own history. Or or they're thinking of 164 BC, when that Jewish family called the Maccabees uh, did a revolt against the Romans, and and Judas Maccabees, having defeated the Romans for a season, uh, entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they waved palm branches. And from that point on, which would have been about 200 years before this, palm branches branches became a sort of national sign for Israel a sign of deliverance from the romans and so waving a palm branch was like waving a flag of nationalist pride and so all of this isn't just random uh, it's not just you know they threw their coats down because that 's what you do in a bible story this is their this is their history, this is their acknowledgement of jesus 's uh significance and importance, and so they they make this way before him and and as he enters in on this cult, uh, the other writers tell us that there was jubilation, celebration, there was shouting, there was singing, and they sang. Words like this, verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they're drawing from, in part, Psalm 118. You can look at that really quick. Psalm 118, which would have been one of the pilgrim songs they would always sing when they came into the town, when they came towards Jerusalem. Verse 25 of Psalm 118 says, O Lord, do save. We beseech you. That's that's Hosanna. O Lord, Hosanna means please save us. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. This celebratory song is one that's already on the lips of all these pilgrim travelers. And so when they say Hosanna, they're talking about the plea for God to save them. And likely in their minds is salvation from Roman oppression, salvation from uh, their circumstances, from their, their national troubles. And when they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's something they would say to all pilgrims. And so Psalm 118 was an antiphonal song. Uh, in other words, a priest would say Hosanna. The people would say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that's sort of a, a question and answer thing. And then... From that point, what would happen is uh, they would continue to say this to their fellow travelers. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And that word in verse 10 isn't from Psalm 118. It's just something that they're saying because they see that Jesus, like blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10 said, he is a descendant of David. He is part of the tribe of Judah. This is a jubilant crowd. This is a crowd that is bringing a claim to Jesus but not a crowd that fully understands all that's about to happen. And that brings us to the conclusion of this little passage, and it's the assessment of Jesus. Jesus, verse 11, entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Is it the weirdest possible end? all this jubilation... And then Jesus, seemingly no longer surrounded by the crowd. They sang their songs, and now he enters into Jerusalem and goes into the temple. Not into the Holy of Holies or anything, but likely into the temple complex, the courts that surrounded uh, the, the court of the Gentiles, the, the court of the men, all of that. Jesus would have walked around in it freely. And the sun is setting, and it's getting late, and apparently his disciples are either with him or waiting for him outside the temple complex. But verse 11 is just so strange, isn't it? Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. How does all this celebration end with, okay, bedtime, Jesus looked all around. It's important to notice what's going to happen, and we won't look at this passage till next week. But a fig tree is about to get cursed for being barren. And Jesus is going to return to the temple the next day with a whip and drive out the false teachers. You see, the Messianic expectation was that the promised king would come and save the people, Hosanna, and judge the nations. They did not expect that the Messiah would come and judge the people and save the nations. The cry out for salvation from Rome was what was on the people's minds. But Rome, Jesus understood, wasn't their biggest problem. Jesus walks around and looks all around the temple. Commentators read this passage and say, it's so anticlimactic because he goes back to Bethany and goes to bed because it's late. But look at the surveying eyes of Jesus in this anticlimactic moment because the temple that he's surveying is his temple. And it sits at the center of his kingdom and his nation and his people. And this entire journey is all part of his plan and his will and will culminate in his glory, which will not be a superficial political victory over Rome, but will be a glorious atonement on the cross and a glorious resurrection. He sees the temple, the kingdom, the nation, the people, his glory, his will, his plan, his inauguration. And he comes to his temple not to reform it or improve it or rectify wrongs. He has come to fulfill his temple. Jesus has entered to replace the temple. A perfect atonement will be accomplished in one week's time. And Jesus will be the center point of all worship. All true worship, no longer the temple, the holy place, the locust day, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus went into the temple and looked all around. Jesus surveys the temple, not as a tourist or just a simple Jewish pilgrim visiting or as a worshiper, but he assesses it as its architect and the object of true worship. And there will be a fissure, a breach, a break, A battle on the horizon between this temple, its present religious system, and the Lord himself. An inevitable conflict between their religious system and the Lord himself. This is a survey and an assessment when Jesus will go toe-to-toe with the present spiritual leadership because he is the one that they purport to worship. That's the setup happening here. And you can call it anticlimactic, but the tension could not be more severe because Jesus looks all around the temple. He surveys it and finds it barren like a fig tree with no figs. And when He comes back tomorrow, He will cleanse it and when he's there, overlooking it from his cross on Friday, he will render this temple obsolete and irrelevant because he's not the kind of king that they expected. He's the kind of king we need, the kind that saves us from our sin. Father, thank you for Jesus and his triumphal entry. Help us to see his sovereignty and his claim. And help us to understand that true worship is not focused on anything mad made, but on the divine way of salvation. That Jesus is the only way to be saved and reconciled to God. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.